Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Massachusetts is ending its school mask mandate after February vacation. Governor Baker's announcement comes after a growing number of Bay State cities have eased their COVID restrictions. And it was met by anti-vax protesters. Plus, more protests over plans to close Tufts Children's Hospital. And the city of Boston has expanded its protected bike lane network, but not everyone is happy. That and more on our local news roundtable. Later in the show, rosé all day? Absolutely. The blush wine is more popular than ever. We're lifting a glass on all things rosé to celebrate the season of love. But first, joining me now, Sue O'Connell, political commentator and analyst for NECN, NBC10 Boston, and co-publisher of Bay Windows and the South End News. Welcome back, Sue. Hey, Callie. Also with me, Gin Dumchus, Managing Editor at the Dorchester Reporter. Hi, Gin. Hey, how are you? Oh, I'm glad to have both of you here. Well, I know people have talked it over and talked it over and talked it over, but we need to talk it over again, which is the dropping of this mask mandate for K-12 through schools, which is a big deal on many fronts. Um, let's just say the anti-vaxxers were there protesting in general because they're just against vaccination. But the teachers and the teachers union were annoyed by this, too, thinking it's a little bit jumping the gun. Um, what do you think, Gen? Well, I think it's interesting that uh, uh, Michelle Wu uh, the other day said that she's not dropping the mask mandate. This is right after the governor uh, made his announcement. And she said she's looking for those downward trends uh, in terms of the positivity rates and the and the hospitalization. So uh, this is this is going to be something that's going to be playing out on the local level for sure. Everybody's got a different comfort level and exactly when and where this is going to happen. It, it's it's going to it seems like it's going to split like fissures across the state. Just to be clear, um, Sue, can, as Gen says, these other communities say, no, we're not dropping it, you know, or, but mm-hmm. will it have any teeth at, at that point? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, it's great to have cover from the state on anything, recommending what the, the towns and cities should do. Um, so I think they will individually decide as they they can i mean i I think it's premature i think this dropping of the mask mandate is a bit premature it may end up being the right gamble but again i don't know why we keep thinking gambling on this is is the route we want to take i keep thinking that we we're forgetting that the enemy is covid right the enemy isn't the tools that we're using to fight covid the, the enemy isn't vaccines, the enemy isn't masks, the enemy isn't social distancing, the enemy is COVID. And I really wish that people would focus on on fighting COVID to a point that we can get it to an endemic stage instead of a pandemic stage. 
and then maybe we can more securely return uh, to whatever the new normal is that we're going to live in. And the other thing that keeps making my mind explodes, I don't see children protesting about wearing masks. They're being very compliant. They don't seem to be complaining that much about it. I don't see what the big deal about maybe extending it another month or two until we see where we are uh, to make people feel safer about it. But again, COVID's the enemy. It's not masks. So why do you think that Governor Baker felt it was important, obviously he did because he made the announcement, to make this move now? Now, we should put this in a context that there are other governors and not all of them Republican. In fact, there are some Democratic governors who are making the same move in other states. But why Governor Baker in this moment again? Well, I mean, I think he's looking at at uh, other states doing that. I mean, and if you look at his tactic or strategy throughout the the pandemic, um, he he is tended to side with letting folks make those individual choices. You know, I, I think he's questioned how enforceable something is like this coming from the top. And I get his point on that. For, for me personally, I'm, I'm, I've am i still been wearing a mask on the MBTA as well as in the office. Uh, I'm, I tend to be a pretty cautious person. So I'm I'm looking to uh, to see the, the trends go down and, and uh, um, see, see where that where that takes us before I kind of relax my guard. Uh, the same question to you, Sue. I'm imagining, though, and you're right, I know a lot of this is coming from parents, and that's their right because that's their kids to to protest or stand up for as they see fit. However, the here's the reality. They have not uh, yet signed off on a on a vaccine for kids um, from, you know, near birth to five. We only have the ones 12 and up, and the numbers of those are low. They're still not vaccinated in numbers that would make you feel like you're heading toward herd immunity. So frankly, I have to say I've avoided kids because I see them as walking around carrying stuff. And listen, parents with kids are trying to keep them away from the rest of us as well. So I don't get in school, though there are those that say it's hurting the kids because they miss seeing the lip movement and, and that helps in the understanding of the educational material. So I see that. But I, I guess I think if you're just going to be in there and, and go home all the time because the COVID cases keep rising when a simple mitigation can keep it at bay, I don't understand. Yeah, I, I totally agree, Kelly. I mean, I'm I'm actually wearing my mask. I, I'm with Gin about when I wear it. I wear it in public on public transportation, grocery stores. I'm wearing it mostly at work. Um, and I always wear it around people who have kids <laughs> because I know that they may be being careful, but they may catch it from their kids. Um, I don't understand why a tiny, uh, almost free piece of material that would keep us from catching a whole host of illnesses is in such contention. I don't understand that. I think parents of younger kids, they don't like adding another medicine and another vaccine. And I get that part. I think that will change as as the science continues to support how safe vaccinations are. But, you know, to your point about Baker, your question about uh, Governor Baker, I think this is just ideologically in line with how he thinks, where he wants to give guidance. And then he wants individuals, individual states, towns, individual bodies to make their own decisions. Well, it should be noted that uh, our state house reporter, Mike Dehan, noted uh, that the protesters, by the way, the adult protesters who were there at the time of the announcement were all masked less. Mm-hmm. So do with it as you will. But there you go. Let's move on. Um, I'm very interested in 
the decision by Tufts Children's Hospital to close and direct the patients that they would have had, the young patients, to children's. And there are a lot of parents that are upset. So last week, a crowd gathered to protest the decision to close Tufts Children's Hospital. And now there's a petition to save the hospital, which has over 60,000 signatures. Let's take a listen to a clip of the protest from NBC10 Boston. It's critical for us and for our daughter. Illness that she has is pretty rare, and the only uh, facility that will treat her and the doctors that will treat her uh, happen to be here at Tufts Children's. Michael says she was finally seeing progress. We're about four rounds of confusions in. Uh, we're being told that she'll no longer uh, have, have this capability or this service provided to her, and that has been devastating. I know this is all about money, and in some cases, it might begin about numbers. You know, there was there's always a protest around the closing of, let's say, schools. I'm not comparing the two, but sometimes when you look a little deeper, you find out that the numbers of students in the schools is not high. So uh, the powers that be say, well, let's merge or let's um, close this school down. I don't know that that was the case at Tufts Children's Hospital, but maybe you know something I don't know. Well, I, I think uh, uh, there's been, uh, from from what I've read, the, the the medical center found that adult beds have been in in higher demand. So they're shifting to where the the market is, rather than letting the pediatric beds uh, sit half empty. I, I think I think overall, this to to zoom out the the. The state's medical sector is is going through a lot of change and upheaval, and and the market forces that are driving uh, a lot of uh, mergers, expansions into the suburbs. I think as as we trend towards a future where uh, it's very possible that that doctors will be, you know, we could come back to doctors uh, coming to people's homes. Mm. Um, you know, so so I think I think it's 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 part of a, a larger shift in in uh, the medical sector. And you're going to see these things like this play out in, in, in the same way that we see it uh, in, in schools when there's fewer students and the cities have to uh, change around priorities or change around where funding goes. Well, one of the things, Sue, uh, that some of the protesters were clear about is that Tufts and not Boston Children's has addressed uh, some children with special rare diseases, a couple of rare diseases. And as of this moment, Boston Children's Hospital um, does not have either the expertise or has has not cared for for those children, so they're looking into it. They say, but I don't I don't know what's going to happen to them. So naturally, those parents are quite upset. I, I certainly understand. I mean, I have a kid who's had chronic illnesses, multiple chronic illnesses, and we've we've been at uh, Boston Children's. We've also been at Tufts a couple of times. I certainly understand and empathize with when you have a doctor, when you have a treatment team especially when you have a kid that's sick, the, how essential that is to your well-being and, and just the comfort level of your family and getting care. I also understand, you know, that Children's Boston Children's Hospital doesn't accept all the insurances that Tufts uh, and the Floating Hospital uh, does, and also some of the care groups that are particular to Tufts uh, are often on uh, public assistance and, and public health care. So those are some challenges Boston Children's Hospital tells everyone that they are going to be working on uh, finding ways to bridge that gap to treat those those uh, patients, especially the ones that have particularly uh, rare illnesses. But at the same time, I'd also note that some of the illnesses that have been mentioned are also treated at MGH's uh, Mass General Hospital's pediatric care wing. So, hmm. you know, I think there is available treatment again. I know you don't want to change your doctors and change care, but I think that both 
MGH and uh, Boston Children's Hospital, as well as some of the other hospitals in the area are going to be stepping in to, to fill that gap. And again, as you said, when you, we start talking about this, it is about the money for the most part. Um, Tufts keeps reporting that they have had empty children's uh, empty beds. Uh, they have not had uh, as robust a treatment business model as some of the other hospitals have. Boston Children's is expanding. You know, they've just opened up another building over in the Brookline area. They have um, uh, uh, satellite offices and treatment and, and outpatient surgery all across the region. So I think this is a bit of a battle of Goliath and David. And in this case, I think that uh, Goliath may be winning. And what do you think about what Gen says about there's just going to be wholesale change in general? And, and I would add one other point. I wonder if COVID now has informed some of the decision making that may be happening, not necessarily the Tufts one that could have been on the books for a while, but there may be a lot of rethinking given what we've seen during COVID. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the insurance providers, remember, were sort of the ones that were blocking the idea of telehealth because they were concerned about fraud and they were concerned about a whole number of other issues. And COVID has certainly leveled the field on that where, uh, you know, my, my daughter has probably 40 doctor's appointments a year. And during COVID, I think only three of them have been in person. Uh, and mm-hmm. I think that hopefully when we get on the other side of this, whatever that is, uh, it allows um, the care, especially that children get, to be totally rethought in a way that uh, makes it easier for the, the patients and families to access the care. And I think that might be part of what's going on here, too. What do you think about that, again, about COVID impacting, you know, some of the shifts in the way that healthcare is practiced in Massachusetts? Well, I think in, like in many sectors, COVID accelerated a, a number of things. The, the telehealth thing was was definitely one of them. We, we saw the huge uptick. I mean, I, I personally did telehealth visits. It's, it's definitely not ideal. It's different. Uh, I remember my, my doctor asked me what, what my weight was, and I actually had to run upstairs to the bedroom and get the... <laughs> Why don't you just lie, the, the <laughs> Yes, it's it's very hard, very hard to do. So, um, so you know, and and it's and it's also you know we're we're still in the middle of the pandemic. So I think uh, certainly when when I've gone into the to the hospital for for any number of reasons, it, it, there's been some trepidation about exactly what what am I walking into, um, you know. And then obviously the 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 good people, the nurses and doctors, put me at ease. Uh, with all the precautions they take. But I think uh, COVID basically accelerated a lot. You know, there could be a staffing issue too. You know, it's the, there's a lot of turnover right now in the uh, medical That's sector. True. You know, a lot of burnout, understandably so. And uh, I think the, the medical sector is not immune to the economic trends of, of uh, people leaving workforces, trying to catch a break or trying to find something more fulfilling, knowing that the pandemic kind of reordered priorities. Mm. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm speaking with our local news roundtable guest, Sue O'Connell of NECN and NBC10 Boston, and Gen Dumchus of the Dorchester Reporter. Let's talk about bike lane construction, uh, Boston and the environs. This is very sensitive arena. <laughs> Listen, there, there, there's been a lot of conversation about uh, getting this bike, the bike lanes constructed. Uh, Boston and other cities took advantage of a time during COVID when there were fewer cars on the streets because people were at home or limited to uh, where they might go and finally got busy building them. But the way some of them have been built and the seemingly lack of serious conversation with some of the communities 
have left uh, some people lacking. The bicyclists seem to be overall excited, but this is a there's a lot going on in this, and um, there are a lot of feelings on both sides, Ken. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's anytime you come you uh, come between a, a person who drives a car and and the road, you know, you 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 I've I've certainly heard about it. I, again, it's the the COVID is shifting the conversation and accelerating things. I mean, if you look at some cities in Europe, it's uh, you know bicycling is is considered a you know just a normal way to get to work and, and a safe way to get to work so i think i think the the important thing is to have infrastructure uh because if you don't have infrastructure if people don't feel safe taking to the road because they're going to be competing with uh with cars and road road rage and all that then then uh you know they're going to be less likely to, to bike so building that infrastructure is key i just want to point out a lot of people took to the bike during COVID. And that's not going to regress, I think. 25% more people or more biking activity in most Massachusetts municipalities, according to a Globe article. Blue bike rentals are up. I personally on this show have done a couple of stories about the shortage of bike parts, the shortage of bikes, period. Um, so great amount of interest as people felt like that was a safer way than public transportation to get around. Um, so bikes are here to stay to some large degree, but you, we, we got to all live together, Sue. <laughs> right. I was going to say that's, that was going to be my point, Kelly. We still have all the same problems we had before, right? We, we still have uh, uh, deliveries that have to be made. We still live in a city that's really old and in many spots uh, was made for, um, you know, horses and carriages and we didn't update them and we're not going to update them. And you only need to take a, a drive after a snowstorm uh, down a couple of streets in Jamaica Plain to realize how narrow those streets are to begin with, right? So we still have that infrastructure that's not going to change. We still have trucks that need to make deliveries. We still have um, uh, the, the the challenge of, which I, I'm concerned about, There's there doesn't seem to be a, a cohesive plan about the bike paths making sure that they are connected in a way that you don't go from being safe and protected and having, um, you know, the, the, the lanes go along the sidewalk to suddenly have them move to somewhere else. I wish there was sort of a bike transportation czar um, that we could have in place to sort of take the opportunity to work. Well, to... we had one at one point, remember? Right. I don't think we do yeah. now, though. And, no, and, no. And, mm -hmm. and we've got this, 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 this wonderful growth of bike lanes and um, people using uh, bikes for transportation, which I, I agree will stay, but I think we need to have it be cohesive, especially as people start going back on the road and start returning to commuting to work by car. So, uh, and, and as you said too, it's, uh, it's an explosive issue. People on both sides of the issue tend to get very upset very quickly if they feel they're being misrepresented in some way. As you know, Kelly, I'm sitting in my car right now and I'm looking at a <laughs> truck parked in a bike lane on Tremont Street in mm. the South End, but where else are they going to park, right? There's got to be an yeah. answer to this. Well, I live in Cambridge and Cambridge is in a big fight because there are some areas where they put in the bike lanes and appear not to have spent a lot of time talking to the people who have businesses along those right. lanes. And I have to say, I'm not a big cyclist at all. In fact, I don't cycle, but I'm in favor of bike lanes. But I am not in favor of, I don't see why you have to have two on a narrow street. I don't get that. And there I was in the night in the rain trying to see and those posts come out, it's really not a good situation. And I don't want to hit anybody and I don't want them hitting me. So 
I just think that there's got to be better design going on in other places, and some of that needs to be rethought. I'm all about the bike lanes. Don't send me the notes. I'm with you. (laughs) (laughs) Something has got to, we got to have another look at this. That's all I say. You know. can, can I can I just add too the the market the market is somewhat responding to the to the increase in biking I, I got a tour of the beat development in Dorchester uh, and that's the former globe headquarters right on Morrissey Boulevard oh. it's, it's it's not that far from from the the JFK UMass stop and you know as I was walking around they were showing me the the basketball court you know the the, the where the food hall area and then I look over and I'm like what what's what's this room and he's like oh th- that's where all the bikes are gonna go and it's like just mm-hmm. just rows and rows of racks you know it was like it was it was basically like a, a bike cage at at, uh, at a MBTA station wow so so it's interesting that the the uh, developers already uh, uh, thinking thinking ahead on this the other part of that is is uh is economic right i mean the people the people who are going to be in this building are are probably going to be making six-figure salaries you know and i think it's important too to make sure that bikes are accessible to everybody you know it's in and making sure that uh that that infrastructure is there making it easy for someone to uh, uh, to get on a bike and, and get to where, where they need to go rather than owning a, a, an expensive car, which is a depreciating asset. And I would just add that when we talked about that bike shortage, that drove the prices up into astronomical levels, even used bikes. You just couldn't put your hands on one and people were, were paying through the roof, sort of like what you're seeing with, with houses these days. But anyway, so there's some work to be done there before somebody loses their mind out of there in, in the middle of the street. <laughs> like you. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yes, like me. Um, uh, we got to talk politics, of course, in any conversation about local. All three Democratic candidates for Massachusetts Attorney General joined GBH's Greater Boston last week. Here are the former Boston City Councilor Andrea Campbell, Attorney Shannon List Reardon, and former nominee for Lieutenant Governor Quentin Palfrey, each answering why they're the best candidate for the job. I bring a unique legal experience. I worked in the nonprofit sector as an education attorney in state government as an attorney for Governor Deval Patrick, as well as for a regional planning agency and that elected experience. So all of that is unique. And in this moment in time, I'm really excited for my candidacy and to get out there and tell folks what the AG's office can do in their daily lives. I have spent my career fighting the toughest battles, taking on the biggest challenges against some of America's largest corporations. I have fought for workers. I have won. And I'm excited to take this work to the people as the next Massachusetts Attorney General. So as a former Assistant Attorney General, I've seen firsthand how much impact the AG's office can have on the issues that matter the most. Uh, The AG can bring consumer protection cases against uh, Predatory lenders and scammers can bring much needed urgency to the fight against racial injustice and the climate crisis um, and the fight for our democracy. Okay, so (laughs) I think everything that everybody said was true, but to you both, here's the deal. Most of them all agree with each other. This won't be the first time that there's been a race where candidates agree, but uh, what do the voters do with that bit of information (laughs) again? Well, I, I think as as the the primary date uh, in September is going to get closer, they'll they'll be they'll be trying to draw sharper and sharper distinctions. Uh, you know, I, I think uh, what happens a lot when you have several Democrats running who who largely agree on things, it, the primary becomes on the areas where they disagree, and it can get quite quite vicious. I think it's going to be interesting to see 
what they talk about versus what the attorney general's office really does and, and how it interacts with, with uh, people. Attorney General Maura Healy's office is quite prolific in terms of, you know, if you, if you look at, if you look at the press releases that, that come in on a, on a regular basis, she's not just going after, you know, at the time it was the Trump white house, but it was also, you know, contractors and people who do Medicaid fraud and, you know, just stuff that affects uh, normal everyday people. I know with the Democratic primary, there's there's going to be voters who have their pet issues. Uh, but for for consumers, uh, the you know, consumer protection is a huge part of the job, um, uh, a huge part of the law that the attorney general is tasked with enforcing. Hmm. Sue, I agree. It's as much as they agree with each other, it is going to be about the sharp distinctions they're able to pull. Plus, for me, I think it's going to be about how they campaign. Right. So one or two of them will make an unforced error somewhere. Uh, one or two of them will say something um, that they shouldn't say out loud or, or is said to the wrong group. Um, how, how skilled are they uh, in the campaign arena? Um, because that's, I know folks sometimes say, well, it, it, it's a popularity contest, but it isn't. I, I often think how someone runs their campaign, how they run their campaign team, uh, is a good indicator as to how they're going to run their office, how they're going to manage their administration. But uh, it is it is going to be about getting the message, the name recognition, running a great campaign, not making any unforced errors, and connecting to the voters, as Gin says, about what the attorney general does for you. It's one thing mm-hmm. to be suing Trump, but it's another thing to be suing a contractor who you may have hired uh, and who took off with your money. So I, I'll be looking forward to them crafting those messages. Hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll say too that I, I covered I covered the the race in 2014 between Maura Healy and, and uh, Warren Tolman. And, uh, you know, it definitely it definitely got very personal that uh, Healy called Tolman a, a shadow lobbyist. And it was very much kind of an insider versus outsider frame that she tried to put him in. Uh, even when Deval Patrick endorsed Tolman, Healy's team turned right around and said, well, you know, that's that's typical. It's the Beacon Hill Insider, uh, you know, endorsing Beacon Hill Insider, which, mm-hmm. you know, when you think about it, it's like Deval, Deval Patrick of all people uh, <laughs> yeah. getting accused of that. It uh, <laughs> did not get along with the legislature. Uh, so so it's I, I, I sense that there'll probably be some stuff about the biographies, too, and kind of what they've done in their past, who they represented. That will that will likely come up. Mm. All right. Well, moving on, there has been a bill to consider giving undocumented immigrants driver's licenses. The reasons being on the approved side or the people who are supporting it is that you have people who have to go through the testing and you don't have people illegally driving on the roads. On the other side, people say, hey, only citizens should have be able to get these licenses. And this is just a step too far. So anyway, it looked like that there was bipartisan support for this basically because of the the, uh, safety issue. But the bill got delayed again, or its decision on the bill got delayed again. How do you interpret that? Is this just rolling it down the the street again, and then maybe in another year, it'll be back up, Sue? Yeah. (laughs) You know, I mean, I I, I don't know that there's... I'm always conflicted about um, how much the Massachusetts state lawmakers uh, don't accomplish in any given year and what gets kicked down the lane. And I I think that although there is a growing momentum to get this passed and to to grant these licenses, and I think that there's probably public support for it, uh, I don't think there's a big appetite for lawmakers uh, to really engage in this right now. And if they can put it off, I I really think that they will. Again? 
Well, I think I think there's two things. The first is we are in an election year, and and this is one of those things yeah. where where it can come up. Uh, you know, especially I mean, obviously the Democrats have a super majority um, at the state house, but it, it's the the entire spectrum of the of the Democratic uh, uh, Party that that that's uh, that's up there. Uh, the other thing is just uh, you know what, what what Sue was getting at. The legislature is not good at at juggling multiple things, uh, and that's partly just the format. It's it's uh, you have a, a a small number of people dealing with a large number of bills. And what happens is there, you know, and this happens every every cycle, there's a backlog, you know, and what really rises to the top is the, the priorities of the Senate president and the House speaker, and to a certain extent, the the, the governor. So it's, it, it's uh, I, I, I think these types of bills are, are victims of both uh, it being a political year and just the, the way the legislature is structured, not being able to handle multiple things at once. Mm-hmm. Um- Mayor Wu, Mayor Michelle Wu, has an equity and inclusion cabinet. And uh, within it, there is now a new office for black male advancement. So here's Frank Farrow, the executive director of that new office that is focused on uplifting black men and boys in Boston. As a black man raising two black boys in this city, I want my sons Christian and Kingston to have every opportunity and every resource available to them. So the narrative is no longer about black men and boys needing to be resilient or striving to be better, but of them thriving and realizing their full potential and including the conversations of Boston's prosperity. So what do you two think about the potential effectiveness of this office? Again? Well, I, I think that remains to be seen and, and kind of to give it time to do its work and, and see where it goes and, and also uh, hold the office accountable if it, if it falls short. Um, and I, I think uh, Mayor Wu is someone who's, who's big on metrics, who's big on showing the work. Um, so that'll be, uh, that'll be proved out by what, the, by what the office ends up doing. Sue? Yeah, I'm not, as I, we talked about earlier with the, the bike issue, I'm a big fan of having someone in charge of uh, multiple issues. And as you know, Mayor Walsh, uh, former Mayor Walsh sort of vetoed this idea because he felt that it was duplicating efforts that other um, uh, other parts of his administration were working on. So I'm optimistic to have one spot, even if there are other places doing it, to try and coordinate the efforts. And, you know, again, it's also important to note whenever we uh, we cheerlead and advocate for one group of people or one constituency. Sometimes we leave others behind. And, um, you know, as we have been working at lifting up the voices and, and efforts and experiences of women and women of color, uh, unfortunately, we have left some men behind and particularly black and brown men. So, uh, like, again, I, I think the great thing about Michelle Wu, I think, and I think we can all agree on this, is that she is data driven and um, wants measurable success. So I think that helps um, give a level of comfort in some of these initiatives that they they won't just be throwing money at something or throwing appointments at someone, that they actually will be expected to deliver and be measured. So I'm optimistic about that. Okay, well, that's a good place to leave our conversation. I thank you both for joining me. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks for having us. Sue O'Connell is a political commentator and analyst for NECN, NBC10 Boston, and co-publisher of Bay Windows and the South End News. Gen Dumchis is managing editor at the Dorchester Reporter. Coming up, feeling the love 
This year, people are toasting their sweethearts, not with champagne or beer, but with rosé. Listen again to our story about rosé producers who are meeting the increased consumer demand with new styles, exciting wine lovers and making enthusiasts out of wine drinkers who declared they'd never go pink. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley.